Today, uh, I'm pleased to announce that after, after months of tough and thoughtful negotiations, I think we have an historic, I know we have a historic economic framework. It's a framework that will create millions of jobs, grow the economy, invest in our nation and our people, turn the climate crisis into an opportunity and put us on a path not only to compete, but to win the economic competition for the 21st century against China and every other major country in the world. After stalling for months, one key part of President Joe Biden's domestic agenda, a $1.2 trillion physical infrastructure plan brokered by Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, has passed into law. But the fate of an even larger human infrastructure plan remains unsettled, in part because of limits set by cinema. So at the very moment cinema is receiving credit in some quarters for guiding bipartisan legislation to the finish line to help patch up the nation's deteriorating infrastructure, she's also catching flack from more progressive Democrats who see her as holding back the Biden agenda. And after a sobering election loss in Virginia and a near miss in New Jersey last week, Democrats are worried about the future. I'm Ron Hansen, national politics reporter for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, also a national politics reporter for the Republic. And you're listening to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. In today's episode, we're talking about Senator Cinema, her role in shaping legislation, and what it means for her and other Democrats in Washington and here at home in Arizona. Here to help us understand what to make of Arizona's enigmatic senior senator is Kyle Kondik, political analyst and managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. Kyle, welcome to The Gaggle. Thanks for having me. Let's go ahead and start with Cinema's infrastructure bill. This $1.2 trillion bill will boost spending on roads and bridges, water and transit systems, and it will expand broadband connectivity across the country. Kyle, Infrastructure Week was kind of a running joke throughout the Trump years, partly because there was always a sense that something could be done on that front. Why was it different this time, and what was Kirsten Cinema's role in that? Well, look, I mean, Cinema holds this really interesting position in the Democratic Senate caucus in which she and Joe Manchin, I guess, are, are sort of the most prominent kind of uh, moderates or le- less liberal or less progressive members of the caucus. But, um, you know, they effectively end up having something akin to veto power over whatever the caucus tries to do. Now, the the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a little bit different in that you did have uh, a substantial number of Republicans in the U.S. Senate voted for it. And then we saw a handful of House Republicans um, vote for it on, uh, on on Friday evening. But, you know, she's played this important role in that, you know, there's this push and pull within the Democratic Party of you know, there's, there are a number of prominent progressives, particularly in the House, that are trying to push legislation to the left. And then uh, Cinema and Manchin are kind of trying to pull it more toward the center. So it's kind of this, this game of tug of war. And now the first part of it is taken care of. You know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill has gone to the president's desk. Uh, but then you have this bigger kind of Democrats only social spending package 
that uh, cinema and mansion have already kind of chopped down quite a bit in terms of the price tag, but it still remains kind of an open question as to whether it's actually going to happen or not. And if cinema doesn't like the eventual end product, then maybe it doesn't happen. On the physical infrastructure package, how do you predict Democrats, including Cinema and her seatmate, Senator Mark Kelly, also a Democrat, how do you see them communicating what this new money, which is about $550 billion or so, what does this mean in real people's terms? And how do you see them pitching this thing ahead of the next cycle? Well, I'm sure you know infrastructure just generally is a, is, a, is a sort of a concept that pulls well. You know, it's it's easy to get Democrats and Republicans both to agree that hey, we need to build more roads or improve our roads and improve our bridges and and, and this and that. You know, it's kind of a um, it, it's kind of an easy thing to try to talk about positively, but you you also have to try to figure out ways to make these things you know actually make people actually see them. One of the reasons I think Biden has become unpopular is partially because like gas prices are high and you you know. Everyone is reminded of gas prices whenever you go out for a drive or go out for a walk, even in the neighborhood, because you walk past a gas station and it's an advertisement essentially for how high how, how prices are. Generally speaking, it's like an easy thing for people to see. You know, how do people see the um, see the infrastructure? Well, they have to see that things are being built. The party has to try to figure out ways to, uh, you know, put signage on that like communicates that that certain projects are being created. I mean, you know, I I do remember. 10 years ago or, or more like a dozen years ago when, um, you know, when Democrats uh, did their own stimulus uh, following the 2008, you know, economic collapse. And, you know, you did see, you know, signage for infrastructure projects and whatnot. Um, but ultimately, I don't think Democrats ended up getting much credit for those things passing. And, you know, historically speaking, it's hard to uh, get credit from the public for passing, you know, big, big spending packages, big legislation, because, you know, ultimately the non-presidential party often has advantages in off-year and midterm elections anyway. And whatever the party in power accomplishes, it can just be sort of hard to get the the word out about it. I mean, you just think about there's been months and months and months of talk about the Democrats, you know, trying to pass these bills and, and you know, holding up the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And then, you know, they pass it late on a Friday night. I'm sure that there'll be a big to do about the, you know, the signing ceremony for it when, when the president ends up signing it. But um, it's just hard to cut through the noise, particularly when you have other kind of negative things going on. You know, gas prices is one, you know, inflation is is another. Um, and Democrats have also, you know, Biden's been struggling ever since the um, Afghanistan withdrawal. You know, the Afghanistan withdrawal has been, you know, moved out of the news, but the president is still unpopular. I think that there has been some uh, you know, questions about the competence of the administration, et cetera. And so those things can just be hard to cut through if you're the the party in power. And again, we see it over and over again in American history that that the party in power just just struggles in these off year midterm cycles. So speaking of noise, uh, Senator Cinema has gotten even more of it, it seems, uh, for helping scale back the build back better plans favored by more progressive Democrats. This would direct money to mitigating climate change, create universal pre-kindergarten schooling, perhaps require paid family leave from employers, extend and expand financial resources to families, and raise and enforce tax collections on the wealthy. In fairness, it's not just her holding that bill back. You mentioned Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He's also helped bring down its price and scope. 
what have the last few months meant to Biden, cinema, and Democrats more broadly as they try and now pivot to uh, messaging the physical infrastructure bill and as they try to uh, bring in the human infrastructure aspect of it for completion as well? I think a lot of the sort of Democrats' dirty laundry and divisions have sort of gotten aired in public, and that I, you know, I doubt that that's you know helping the you know the president's overall approval rating. I mean, I feel like the, the to the extent that the general public is exposed to and and knows about these negotiations, it seems like the biggest thing that's been talked about is you know how many trillions of dollars should it cost and. You know, for some people, particularly fis- people who think that, think of themselves as fiscally conservative, they, maybe they think that, that that price tag is is too much. I think it's been harder for Democrats to communicate exactly what they what's going to be in this legislation, in part because what is in the legislation continues to change, and um, there are certain things that I think many on the left wanted to do that won't pass muster with uh you know with 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 cinema and mansion in particular. You've also had looming over all of this. That's sort of related and sort of not, you know, the potential of doing away with the filibuster in order for the Democrats to pass some of their other you know, priorities, specifically as as it relates to uh, election laws, you know, uh, uh, mandating certain restrictions on partisan gerrymandering, um, voting access, et cetera. And, uh, you know, there, there are a number of Democrats who just don't want to do away with the filibuster. And I think there are more of them in the Senate than just Mansion and Cinema, but Mansion and Cinema have seemed to have been kind of the public face of that particular effort, and so it's just been a time of kind of stymied ambition for Democrats, and also uh, you also have you know some political struggles as you know noted in, in, or is shown in uh, the Virginia New Jersey elections last week where you know Democrats really performed pretty poorly, and um, if that is a sign of the future for 2022. You know, obviously, the Democrats' majorities in the House and the Senate are, are very much at risk. All right, I got to jump off on something that you said at this point because it's it's something that has intrigued Ron and I uh, over the past couple of years since Cinema has been in the chamber. You mentioned that other Democratic senators are against eliminating the filibuster. Obviously, that's true. Yet Mansion and Cinema have taken on such outsized sort of uh, play in all of this. Why is that? I understand Mansion, but why are folks so intensely focused on cinema? I kind of wonder if there's um, a, a little bit of kind of like a style performance aspect to this that has rubbed some Democrats the wrong way. I guess the most notable thing was cinema kind of uh, mimicking the late John McCain and giving a thumbs down to a you know minimum wage proposal. And, uh, you know, I think that sometimes when you when you're in the position of not just doing something that the majority of your party disagrees with, but also doing it in kind of a kind of a flamboyant way, I guess, that that really kind of aggravates him. I think we've seen this with we saw this with McCain throughout his career at at various points. But also, you know, I think you see it on the right, too, when there are um, someone like Liz Cheney, for instance, upsets Republicans, not just by being anti-Trump, but by being kind of loudly anti-Trump. And cinema is not just anti getting rid of the filibuster or and or, you know, opposes the, the huge price tag on a, a social spending package. But she does does so in kind of a um, a kind of an in your face sort of way. Um, and that that's the sort of thing that I guess gets attention and ultimately, you know, upsets people, upsets people on the left. 
Uh, and I think that's that's sort of what what we've seen. And so, you know, I don't know. I, I, it, it seems like there's kind of an open question as to how many Democrats actually would support getting rid of the filibuster. But again, I don't think that, you know, there are 50 Democrats in the caucus. I guess you could say there's 51 because Kamala Harris is effectively the 101st senator, given her important uh, tie breaking role. Um, I don't but I, I don't think that there are just two Democratic senators who oppose doing away with the filibuster. You know, you've seen little signs here and there that there might be there might be some others who um, who, who don't support it either. And yet those two just seem to get a, a, a ton of attention. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, part of it is, is just because they're, they're out front so much and they, you know, the, to the extent that you hear about cinema and mansion, it's because they are maybe different from the rest of their caucus or much of the rest of their caucus. And that in and of itself gets attention. I think that the, the press in general, um, they also kind of love to highlight people who break with their own party. And so that's how, you know, John McCain kind of made a name for that. But, you know, there are, I mean, like Joe Lieberman was a great example and Lieberman ended up losing a democratic primary in 2006, although he ended up winning anyway as a, as an independent after he lost his primary. But um, breaking with your party is, is a thing that generates a lot of attention. Um, and, and, you know, people become familiar with you. And particularly if you're in this situation, if you're a Democrat who thinks that mansion and cinema are holding back action that you agree with, then you become upset with them. So speaking of primaries, uh, we hear a fair amount of chatter about that these days uh, involving Senator Cinema. She's not up for re-election until 2024, but there are a lot of progressives in Arizona and elsewhere who are already itching for a, a primary battle for her, in part because they view her as unreachable on democratic issues. They think she's far too accommodating of the right and won't even speak to uh, folks on the left. She memorably and uncomfortably fled into a bathroom stall recently to avoid questions on immigration from a constituent. likely is any of that going to be in sort of determining what happens in 2024, three years from now? Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack. On one hand, you could say, well, 2024 is a long way away. There's plenty of time for her to recover. You know, let's imagine a scenario in which, I mean, look, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's quite possible that, you know, Mark Kelly doesn't win re-election next year, given what the environment is. And then you might go if, if you're an Arizona Democrat or a national Democrat for that matter, and you see potentially Mark Kelly, if in, I'm not making a prediction there, I think it's basically a kind of a 50-50 sort of race. Um, you know, we do our race ratings for, for House Senate governor. We moved uh, Arizona from leans Democratic to toss up for the gov for the Senate race last week, in part because of the, the confirmation for Virginia and New Jersey that the environment is, is poor for Democrats. But anyway, 
let's let's uh, you know let's say for just for the sake of argument that Mark Kelly loses in, in 2022, you know there might be some Democrats who think, well, wait a second, maybe Cinema's theory of the case here is actually correct, and that she does need to go to the middle on a lot of things and cultivate Republicans in order to win. Maybe that would actually strengthen her hand in a primary because I think Democratic primary voters can often be sort of pragmatic and sort of conservative, not ideologically speaking, but conservative and sort of going with a choice that they think is sort of safer for the for the general election. And cinema may very well be able to present that case. On the other hand, you know, I think a lot of people probably will remember being upset about cinema during these various battles. And that might also give, you know, the you know, there's some polling that indicates that cinema may be, may be vulnerable again. Who knows how accurate those things are at this point of a, uh, you know, at, at sort of just the midpoint basically of, of cinema's six year term. But if people, if, if observers feel that she is vulnerable, that might make uh, stronger primary challengers likely to get into the race. I think specifically about um, U.S. House Representative Ruben Gallego, who has talked about, you know, is, is is might be enticed into running because he feels that cinema is weak, and so the perception of weakness can lead to actual weakness if it causes a strong candidate to enter a race, and so that's something to, to keep in mind. But that that's something that also will get sorted out in you know 2023 and 2024. But you know, I remember, I mean, Jeff Flake, for instance, in Arizona. Uh, you know, he seemed weak throughout 2017 and the, the the fact that he retired kind of confirmed was confirmation that he was he was weak in a primary um, and, and very well, would have, you know, could have lost the cinema in the general election, even if he had gotten renominated. So talk a little bit more about cinema's standing within Democratic circles at this point. She has refused to do away with the legislative filibuster, she's effectively blocked measures that are popular with Democrats, like voting rights um, legislation that she has sponsored from having any sort of chance for moving ahead. My relationships with both Republicans and Democrats in the United States House and Senate um, are critical to the success that I've been able to create for Arizona. Do you see an intellectual sort of through line on this, or is she just an unpredictable swing vote? Um, I think she's an unpredictable swing vote who likes to find opportunities to demonstrate her distance from the kind of national mainstream of the party. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you saw this with her in the House, too, that, you know, she said such an interesting you know, trajectory of her own personal history. You know, she's obviously an extremely accomplished person. Um, both from her, you know, her, her, her educational background or, you know, basically coming from nothing to be a, uh, a member of the U S house and then of the U S Senate. But, you know, she was a you know, green party person and, and, you know, was seen as, as very liberal progressive. And then as she got into office and, and, you know, she kind of changed into more of a kind of a moderate centrist person. Uh, and she demonstrated that demonstrated that sometimes in, um, in the house and now she has in the Senate and, you know, politically speaking, it's been, it's, it's probably, she, she could probably look at it and say, boy, this is the path I've charted. Not only maybe do I personally agree with what I've done and, and, and believe in, in the, the, the path that I've charted, but also that politically it's worked out. You know, she won in 2012 in a, in a, sw- in a district that was seen as a swing district that really wasn't by the end of the decade due to political changes in Arizona. Um, but also, you know, she was on paper, you know, vulnerable in 2014 and, and really ended up winning. I mean, that race never activated, even though it was an incredible Republican year. 
And also she was able to present herself as the best option for Democrats to nominate in 2018 for Senate. Um, and, and in fact, the only option really, I mean, she, she had you know, very nominal uh, opposition in the primary. And you could argue that Martha McSally's primary is part of the reason she ended up losing a narrow race to cinema in 2018. Um, so on one hand, yeah, she's upset a lot of people in her party, but the, the path she's chosen has been politically pretty successful. Then the question is, is has she gone too far into the centrist posturing to the point where she has lost support with so much support within her own party? And that's, you know, that's the great open question about all this. Let me switch subjects just a bit here. Uh, Democrats lost the gubernatorial race in Virginia and they came close in New Jersey to losing. Uh, that that race was tighter than expected. There were other elections, though, such as a ballot measure to restructure policing in Minneapolis that failed. And it seems like taken as a whole, they all reflect a pullback away from Democrats or liberal uh, ideology. It's an off year. Local candidates and local issues still matter. But how worried should Democrats be about their prospects in 2022? You've seen this for a while now. How concerning should this be to the White House, to the members of Congress, all the way down uh, across the board? Uh, I think it should be very concerning because what happened is sort of exactly what you would expect to happen when you have uh, – you know, president and in the low to mid 40s at approval. You know, you usually see um, in these off year midterm elections, there's usually more energy with the non presidential party, which I think we definitely saw. I think Republican turnout was outstanding. Um, you know, I've looked specifically at, at Virginia, and I think, you know, I think what the, the story will be when we have all the data in that, that, you know, Republican turnout was just really excellent. Democratic turnout was fine, but not not good enough to match the um, the really strong Republican enthusiasm. And remember, that was sort of an open question about Republicans is that in a time where, you know, Donald Trump has um, um, spread so much, you know, I would say basically nonsense about about the integrity of the 2020 election. Certainly you've seen Arizona has been kind of the epicenter for that sort of effort. But um but there was some thought is would that actually depress Republicans from turning out? And, um, you know, the, the the Georgia Senate runoffs at the start of the year, that did seem like maybe a factor that Democrats were a little more engaged. But certainly Tuesday night was a sign of very heavy Republican engagement. Um, and so it's a combination of Republicans being enthusiastic and also Democrats doing worse amongst, you know, independent swing voters. Um, you put that stuff together and it's a real uh, alarming sign for Democrats for for. 2022. Um, and again, that's what the history usually suggests that the president's party, you know, struggles in the midterm. Um, so Democrats have to figure out ways to get Biden's approval rating up. And, you know, maybe some of that happens organically. If some of the concerns now about the supply chain, about uh, being able to, you know, find stuff at the store, inflation, gas prices, COVID-19, you know, maybe those things are more in the rearview mirror this time next year. And maybe that you see that change the political environment a little bit, but um, they should feel real pressure to try to, you know, change the story of politics right now because the trajectory is just not good for them uh, and, you know, retaining their majorities in the House and the Senate next year. And again, Arizona is a big piece of that. You know, we're going to have a new congressional map in Arizona that could allow Republicans to, uh, you know, retake an edge in, in, in the state's nine member House delegation. You've got an open gubernatorial race and uh, Mark Kelly has to run for, you know, is running for a full term after winning, um, you know, relatively close race in 2020. So Arizona is going to be one of the places to, you know, one of the top states in the whole country to watch in terms of electoral trends. Sigh. It feels like we were just there in 2020 and 2018. 
Mark Kelly is really well funded at this point, and we anticipate that this is going to be a race um, that you know where we see him exceed perhaps a hundred million dollar point as he has previously. Republicans, meanwhile, don't seem to have really sort of coalesced around a candidate, a single candidate either. There are rumblings that Governor Doug Ducey could still join the race, perhaps in January, February, and inject some new intrigue there. How could a late entry by Ducey, who has been on the wrong side of Trump, but has the same sort of moderate political brand as Youngkin, how how could we see him affect this lineup for Republicans in 2022? Well, it certainly seems like a lot of the national Republican um, Senate folks really want Ducey to run still. I mean, Rick Scott, who is the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, he keeps talking about Doug Ducey all the time, even though, um, you know, Ducey has sort of, you know, said he didn't want to do it. Now, um, up until the filing deadline, you know, you, you, you can always make a late decision. And sometimes, there are kind of late decisions in Senate, uh, terms of Senate candidates that, that really can tell us which way the cycle is going. A great example is from, uh, you know, another Western state, Colorado in 2014, which is a great Republican year that uh, then U.S. House Representative Cory Gardner, you know, passed, kept passing on a Senate challenge to Democrat Mark Udall. And then he finally got in relatively late in the cycle and ended up winning. Um, and maybe Ducey could have that sort of same trajectory. Now, the thing is, is that um, you know, Ducey could have some trouble in a primary, although um, one of the things that happened when Gardner entered that Colorado race was that some of the other Republican candidates got out um, because they recognized that that Gardner was the you know the favorite of national Republican folks. I don't know how the du- how Ducey would, would play, because, again, you'd have, you know, Trump probably maybe, you know, backing someone else. And um, so it's it, it, it's a little murky as to whether he'd get in or not. But certainly if you're Ducey. And you think you can win the primary, you know, what happened in Virginia, New Jersey last week would, would I think would tell him and his political folks that, hey, this is if we if we can get the nomination, this is definitely a race we could win in November or next year. Um, and so that might prove enticing for Ducey to enter the race. So that's a that's a great open question mark, but or an open question. But but again, I, I just think about the, the primary. But, you know, he's a sitting governor. I mean, these things have a way of working themselves out. Um despite the, 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 you know, the, the, the Trump factor. So, um, you know, T, TBD on that, but one, one consequence just overall of Virginia and New Jersey is that my guess is that Republicans are going to have an easier time recruiting candidates and, um, we'll see how that plays out, you know, in some of these U S house races in Arizona and elsewhere. And it might have the effect of, of nudging Ducey into running a race that, that maybe he otherwise wasn't planning on. I just have to note that Ducey and his team have gone from a hard no to, well, you know, we'll see about January or see what happens down the road. So that to me is pretty telling. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And and there's been, uh, you know, again, there's been, been some, some, some buzz that maybe he would eventually get in. And again, of course, the, um, the, the sort of the non-Trump national Republican folks really seem to want him to run. And, and it, it makes makes perfect sense because um, you'd have a, you know, you have a sit, sitting governor and someone who, uh, you know, I, I know, you know, Mark Kelly is going to raise more money than the Republican nominee. But um, given how much money flows into these races and from the outside and, and it's particularly if Ducey's the nominee, you know, I think that they would have the money they would need to win if the environment cooperates. Kyle, one last question for you, Uh, something that has been something of an an obsession here uh, for most of the year was the ballot review that played out 
of Maricopa County's ballots from the 2020 presidential election. How much does something like that seem to cast any lingering uh, impact on either Republican turnout, Republican recruiting, fundraising? How does that whole spectacle factor into what we might be talking about, say, a year from now in Arizona? Um, well, look, I mean, it, it, it definitely seems like there's <laughs> the results in, in Maricopa and Arizona have been analyzed at, you know, uh, ad nauseum and it doesn't seem like there was really anything wrong with them. I mean, I think that, uh, uh, and, and we've seen this in other states that there have been a lot of, you know, unsubstantiated allegations that, uh, you know, have, have not been, not that the, the allegations haven't been bolstered by what these various reviews have found, uh, even what I think is basically a, a biased review uh, or, te- you know, re- review process in, in Arizona, you know, there were desperate to find some reason to think that Donald Trump actually won the state and they just couldn't even conjure it up. It didn't seem like. Um, but I do wonder if, even though I think it's, it's irresponsible that the sort of grievances that Republicans have about voting could actually end up being kind of a motivational tool for Republicans in, in, in elections. Again, that was one of the things we saw in Virginia that instead of Republicans being, um, uh, uh, you know, being a, uh, uh, skeptical of voting and not showing up themselves, you know, they, they showed up in great numbers and, uh, um, this, this continued, you know, that if, you know, I think anger is, is, can be a great motivator for voting. And, um, uh, you know, if there's anger over the, you know, the result of the 2020 election or feeling that it was, it was a stolen election, which again, there's just not good evidence to suggest that it was, but if people feel that way, that might actually motivate them to show up. So there's kind of a, there are some perverse incentives, I think, for some Republicans to kind of stoke these election integrity fears because it might actually get people to turn out in a, in a year and off year uh, uh, election. I think we saw this with you know Glenn Youngkin, the governor elect in in Virginia, that he put he, he had different messages sort of for different folks, but he did kind of touch on the so called election integrity uh, stuff at, at times, and I think that was sort of a um, you know, a message to the Trump base. And uh, look, I mean, he won, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, we can say whether these things are irresponsible or not, the election integrity talk, but um, it, it may actually, instead of something that depresses the Republican base, it might be something that actually motivates them. So um, you might continue to see more of it. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to follow your work on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, I am uh, at K Kondik, uh, and just if I can get a little plug in, if I if I can, I've got a new book out called The Long Red Thread, which is about uh, the history of U.S. House elections since the early '60s and how uh, the chamber went from being dominated by Democrats to uh, you know being competitive from year to year, but where the Republicans have uh, more of an advantage than than Democrats do. Very good. Well, thank you. And Yvonne, my birthday is coming, so you know what I want. All yours. <laughs> That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan with oversight from Manny Lozano. Kaylee, welcome to the team. And thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Also be sure to check out Valley 101, an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com podcast that answers all of your questions about the Valley. From silly to serious, 
You ask the questions and we find the answers. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.